Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with former Maryland Congressman John Delaney, the first Democrat to announce his run for the presidency in 2020. Congressman Delaney talks about his unique approach to expanding health care, which maintains a role for the insurance industry so that consumers have choices. The centrist Democrat and entrepreneur also talks about the need to take a market approach to addressing pressing issues like climate change. Laurie Robertson also checks in. The managing editor of factcheck.org looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program Conversations on Healthcare. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Democratic presidential candidate John Delaney on Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with former Congressman John Delaney, candidate for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. Congressman Delaney, Representative Maryland's 6th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2013 to 2019. Previously, as an entrepreneur, he started two businesses, Healthcare Financial Partners, which provided loans to small healthcare practices, and Capital Source, which invested in small businesses in economically distressed areas. He won the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2004. He earned his BA at Columbia and his law degree from Georgetown. Congressman Delaney, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Great to be with you. You know, you uh, have the distinction of being the first Democrat to uh, throw your hat in the ring for the 2020 presidential nomination, and you're considered as more of a centrist Democrat uh, in this very crowded field. Uh, I had the opportunity to be in Iowa at the wing, wing ding uh, and heard you, and, and uh, I thought you gave a great presentation talking about uh, the strong business sense that you bring to the campaign. I wonder if you could talk about the motivating factor that led you to enter the presidential race and how you would uh, define what makes your candidacy unique. What motivated me most is the sense that our federal government is just broken. The biggest reason it's broken is the complete inability of the political parties to actually find common ground and get anything done. And that has really hurt the American people because the world has changed very rapidly, driven by things like technological innovation and globalization. And there are things that our government should have done a long time ago to address them. And we didn't do them because we're too busy fighting, engaged in partisan warfare. You know, and I think these changes we've seen over the last several decades are accelerating. And, you know, I just think we need a president who actually cares about trying to bring the country together to get things done. And that's really, at the end of the day, why I decided to run for president. I had a very strong bipartisan track record in the Congress. And as someone who spent most of my career in the private sector building things, I think that's the kind of background we needed in our next president. We need a unifier, not a divider. We need a doer, not a talker. Well, Congressman, we're hearing a lot of talk from the Democratic candidates about the American health care system. Some folks very focused on a need to shift to a Medicare for all system. You support universal access to health care, but you said we should be wary of such a radical shift as Medicare for all in the health care infrastructure. We would really welcome you sharing some of the aspects of your better care health care proposal and what might set this apart from other positions on health care. 
Well, you teed the question up well, because I do favor a universal health care system. I favor a system where every American has health care and a right to a health care plan as a right of citizenship. And my better care plan does that. But what makes my better care plan different than Medicare for all is that it's not a single payer health care system. And a single payer health care system means the government is responsible for all the bills. Most countries have a form of universal health care, but it's not single payer. And my better care program is modeled in many ways after what Germany has, mm-hmm. yep. which is effectively a system where everyone gets a basic government health care plan as a right. But then they have options. The first option they have is they could opt out of the government plan, get a tax credit, and use that tax credit to buy their own private insurance. The other option they have is they can take their government plan and improve it with a supplemental health plan, which is also private insurance, which is what Medicare beneficiaries, many of them mm-hmm. do right now. Yeah. And then the third option is they could get their employer health care, and then they could take their tax credit, again, because they're not using the government plan, and they could turn that credit into their employer or their union as a way of offsetting the costs. Everyone has basic government health care as a right, but then there's kind of a private market that floats on top of it where people have lots of options. I, I think that's a better health care mm-hmm. system. I think that leads to a healthier and stronger health care marketplace, and it also gives the American people the choices that they're interested in. You know, I was just thinking about uh, what Americans are probably animated about in healthcare, and I was reading the yesterday's headlines that uh, noted that the cost of employee provided health coverage past twenty thousand dollars per family, and you know the numbers well. Healthcare costs represents about twenty percent of our GDP. We're on the way to you know three and a half trillion dollars a year in expenditures. But what would better care plan look like in terms of trying to address the issues around cost? Yeah. One way to think about it is, you know, in many ways we have a universal health care system right now, and it's called the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And for any person in our country who shows up at an emergency room, they're required by law to receive care. The problem is that care is often 10 to 20 times more expensive than if you would have went to a doctor. So by creating an organized form of universal health care, you create the opportunity to get people in a lower-cost setting for their care. The second thing it does is it allows you to drive preventative medicine better because if people aren't in a health insurance plan, they're just out there uninsured, they never do preventative care, which we all know can save a lot of money. And the only way ultimately to lower health care costs is to make the system more efficient and better organized. That means ensuring the care is delivered at the lowest possible point of cost, creating incentives in the health care system for providers, like the Affordable Care Act, for example, had some really good incentives in it, things like penalizing hospitals if they had lots of readmissions to encourage them to actually give the care they need the first time and, and do things to make sure the patient isn't readmitted, like home care and those kind of things. So you can't really begin to drive efficiencies in the healthcare system unless everyone's in a form of organized healthcare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Congressman, another set of headlines on the front page and then again on the obituary pages of our local newspapers relates to the opioid crisis, which has just right. caused such devastation. You know, seventy thousand deaths last year, mm-hmm. beyond beyond shocking. We'd like you to comment on what your plan is for addressing the opioid crisis and appropriately holding responsible individuals that may have contributed to setting it in motion. I definitely think there needs to be accountability. I think many pharmaceutical companies knew exactly what was going on. 
and they actually encourage more aggressive sales practices. So I think not only the companies should be held financially liable, but I think executives, to the extent they have this knowledge, should be held personally liable uh, in a criminal context. Because we, we lose 70,000 Americans to addiction every year. That's, you know, a Vietnam a year. Mm-hmm. You know, I think what it takes to address it is we need more resources. We've underfunded prevention. We've underfunded mental health. I mean, if you think about the amount of funding we provided against Zika and Ebola, mm-hmm. which reserved the funding, by the way, but we provided billions of dollars of funding to those two situations, and, and I think three Americans died. From right. I think the funding was appropriate, and it prevented it being a much larger scale situation. Mm-hmm. But for years, people advocated for hundreds of millions of dollars of funding for the opioid crisis, and they came up empty-handed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's funding to prevention. I think it's funding treatment. And I think it's really creating parity in our mental health care system. Mm-hmm. But Very we can't important. also ignore the economic opportunity piece of this, because clearly if you have economically distressed communities, you're more likely to have an environment that can lead to addiction. We're speaking today with former Congressman John Delaney, candidate for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. He represented Maryland's 6th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2013 through 2019. You don't want to pull the thread on your tenure in Congress. You were a pro-business, moderate Democrat, and it seemed that that orientation informs your approach to many things, including climate change. And you recently announced a multi-trillion dollar climate plan that you say will achieve far more than the so-called Green Deal, promoting the private sector. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that plan, but also about the climate itself. I was reading, I think, Nate Silver's 538 comment that uh, Inslee's candidacy probably speaks to that climate may not be uh, the thing that's animating the electorate this round. So, Sure. Well, I think I look at I don't think it's that climate is incredibly important to Democratic primary voters as it should be. I think it's very hard to run for president as a one issue candidate because the problems that American people face are much greater than one issue. So I think that's one reason why the governor's campaign didn't work. And I also think every one of the Democratic candidates are very good on this issue. It's not like he was the only one who cares about climate change, mm-hmm. right? So my take on it is very different because, you know, I'm much more clear eyed about things than I think a lot of people. of the energy that this country consumes and about 85% of the energy that the world consumes comes from fossil fuels. And so when you think about getting us off fossil fuels, you have to think about how do we replace that energy? Because fundamentally, the political system will not deny its citizens energy, nor will it just deliver them energy that is incredibly expensive to deal with climate change. And so you have to say to yourself, I want to deal with climate change, but I can't do it on the backs of hardworking citizens. And that's where I think I'm different. I mean, a lot of these people are proposing things that will increase energy costs on the American people dramatically, where half of our country can't afford their basic necessities. Just not going to ever get things done that solve climate change on the backs of hardworking Americans. So you have to be clear eyed about the challenge and not engage in kind of fairy tale solutions. So the first thing I've proposed, which is to put a price on carbon, sometimes known as a carbon tax. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's the best way forward is what it does is it makes fossil fuels more expensive and discourages their use. But what it does that's unique in my proposal, it takes all the money that's raised in the carbon fee, because effectively what the government's doing is putting a fee or a tax on carbon. Over 10 years, it raises $3 trillion. And then it takes all that money and it gives it right back to the American people. And every American gets the same dividend. 
So if you're a working class, middle class American, your dividend will be bigger than the amount that your energy costs go up. So we create an incentive for people to change where they get their energy from. But we do it in a way where the costs of that transition are not borne by working Americans. So that's one of the cornerstones of my plan. I introduced this idea in the Congress, and I introduced it on a bipartisan basis. So this can happen. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of my plan is really, at the end of the day, a massive bet on American innovation. Because fundamentally, we're not going to be able to solve this problem globally unless the United States of America, which is the best innovation economy in the world, effectively innovates new battery storage, transmission, and, Mm -hmm. and direct air capture technologies to deliver around the world. Because we cannot expect the developing world where billions of people in the next several decades will go from poverty to the middle class. We can't expect these countries to deny them energy. And the energy they're going to give them right now is fossil fuels because it's abundant and it's cheap. So we have to basically come up with new energy solutions. And by the way, it's a huge economic opportunity if we do that. Mm -hmm. So I've called for Paris 2.0 to be a global consortium of all the developed nations around the world who contribute money and intellectual capital that can effectively get the world off fossils. Well, Congressman, I think we have so many issues that we need to deal with as a country. And I want to just go back a moment to when we were talking about the opioid crisis and you made a comment that we really need mental health parity in this country. And you've really taken a strong approach on this around uh, the need for behavioral and mental health services. It's, It's such a great need. Certainly in our organization, we've taken an approach to fully integrating behavioral health into primary care and are studying and researching the outcome and the effectiveness of that. I know you've been working on some proposals to address this as well, America's unmet uh, behavioral health care needs. Tell us what you're proposing. Well, I think as part of having a universal health care system, you have to have a minimum set of mental health benefits. You also have to increase reimbursement within Medicaid. Because while many Medicaid programs offer mental health, the reimbursement rates are so low Mm -hmm. that providers don't take it. Like in New Hampshire, for example, I think they pay about 18 bucks for a mental health visit through the Medicaid program. So if you could take private pay or commercial insurance or Medicare, why would you take Medicaid? Mm -hmm. Or or take no insurance at all, as we're hearing from a lot of people. Right. So that's why it's important to initially fix Medicaid, but also to basically have a form of universal health care and make sure that there's a good mental health benefit in it and that the reimbursement rates are sufficient. You know, uh, earlier we were talking about energy and innovation. I was thinking about those two words uh, in the context of what you're doing. It must require an enormous amount of energy to be out on the campaign trail and innovation. I'm wondering, you've had this rare opportunity to talk to Americans Uh, What have you learned from them? I'm sure many of those conversations animate you in terms of your candidacy and the like, but tell us a little bit about what it's like to be out on the road and what sustains you. Well, I mean, you know, I just find these issues are important. You know, I'm about to launch a tour where we focus on entrepreneurship and innovation in the rural economy, something that I think is very important. And really talking about the issues that matter is what sustains me. We've been speaking today with former Maryland Congressman John Delaney, a candidate for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. You can learn more about his campaign platform and his vision for the future by going to johndelaney.com or follow him on Twitter at John Delaney. Congressman, thank you so much for your commitment to improving the public good and for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much. 
Conversations on Healthcare. We want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President Donald Trump has repeatedly criticized energy-efficient light bulbs saying that people are being forced to use bulbs that are more expensive and contain hazardous gases and give off light that's not as good as incandescent. Experts, however, say that's an outdated and inaccurate description of the current technology. Trump spoke in early September about his administration's decision to reverse a 2017 rule that would have extended energy efficiency standards to irregularly shaped bulbs and prohibited the sale of most traditional incandescents. He said that people were being forced to buy bulbs that were, quote, very dangerous with all of the gases. He added, quote, it's considered almost like a waste site. Trump's comments apply to some degree to compact fluorescent or CFL bulbs, which contain mercury. But light-emitting diode or LED bulbs are the dominant environmentally friendly technology. They have no such safety risks and in most cases provide comparable or even superior light at a cheaper lifetime cost than incandescents. CFLs work by exciting mercury molecules to produce ultraviolet light. Because mercury is a neurotoxin, it does mean that if a bulb is broken, special steps should be taken during cleanup. The Environmental Protection Agency recommends airing out the room for five to ten minutes before carefully collecting and placing any glass fragments into a glass jar until the bulb can be taken to a recycling center. The mercury issue is a legitimate drawback to CFLs, but no one is compelled to buy them over LEDs, which do not contain mercury or any other hazardous gases. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Currently, some 30 million Americans have type 2 diabetes, and that number is expected to climb substantially in the coming decades. So Amazon, the creator of the interactive voice technology known as Alexa, and pharmaceutical entity Merck teamed up to launch a competition for developers to create a tool using existing technology that would help folks better manage their diabetes. The winner, SugarPod. The challenge was how do you help someone newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and We already had interactive care plans for people with type 2 diabetes. They they were mobile. And then we thought, well, sure, we can voice enable those care plans. So what we thought that was the most interesting was this integrated care plan that included a device, which is a voice-powered scale and foot scanner that looks for diabetic foot ulcers. And we thought that the scale 
was a nice way of fitting into a routine that someone already had in their day. CEO Ann Weiler says they were intrigued by the opportunity to incorporate Alexa's voice technology along with some simple technologies that exist, but had never been put together. The three components are voice-enabled, scale, and foot scanner, a mobile care plan because voice isn't always the best interface, and then a, a voice interaction that could happen with any sort of Alexa device. Chief Technology Officer Mike Van Snellenberg said creating a user-friendly interface was important, and they got great feedback from consumers. Yeah, especially anytime you want to do interventions on people that are already kind of, well, you need to have very low-touch lightweight interactions, things that don't interfere with a person's life and can kind of gently nudge them in the right direction. While weights are measured and feet photographed, Alexa offers suggestions for weight management, diet, and exercise. SugarPod, a simple constructed Alexa-enabled weight and foot ulcer scanner that empowers newly diagnosed diabetes patients better manage their disease, providing a flow of important clinical information leading to better diabetes management for patients and providers. Now that's a bright idea. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Currently, some 30 million Americans have type 2 diabetes, and that number is expected to climb substantially in the coming decades. Patients who were newly diagnosed often find it difficult to process the behavioral change required to keep their disease in check. So Amazon, the creator of the interactive voice technology Alexa, and pharmaceutical entity Merck teamed up to launch a competition for developers to create a tool using existing technology that would help folks better manage their diabetes. The winner? SugarPod, developed by Seattle-based startup WellPepper. The challenge was how do you help someone newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes? And we already had interactive care plans for people with type 2 diabetes. They, they were mobile. And then we thought, well, sure, we can voice enable those care plans, but isn't that what everyone's going to do? So what we thought that was the most interesting was this integrated care plan that included a device, which is a voice-powered scale and foot scanner that looks for diabetic foot ulcers. And and the reason we went down that path was that we thought that the scale was a nice way of fitting into a routine that someone already had in their day. CEO Ann Weiler says they were intrigued by the opportunity to incorporate Alexa's voice technology for coaching purposes, along with some simple technologies that exist, but had never been put together. The three components are voice-enabled, scale, and foot scanner, a mobile care plan, because voice isn't always the best interface. Sometimes you are at work and you don't want to be talking to someone about your symptoms and your side effects. And then a, a voice interaction that could happen with any sort of Alexa device. Chief Technology Officer Mike Van Snellenberg said creating a user-friendly interface was important, and they got great feedback from consumers who said they quickly adapted to the SugarPod interface. Yeah, especially anytime you want to do interventions on people that are already kind of, well, you need to have very low-touch lightweight interactions, things that don't interfere with a person's life and can kind of gently nudge them in the right direction. While weights are measured and feet photographed, Alexa offers suggestions for weight management, diet and exercise goals, and other behaviors that will empower patients to make lasting behavior changes. What we believe in strongly is that patient-generated health data has a role 
in basically the the whole ecosystem. You know, people don't know quite what to do with it in the EMR yet. Maybe it doesn't need to go into the EMR. Maybe it's in a system like ours where we apply artificial intelligence and machine learning to it in order to find the anomalies or the people who need help and then alert that healthcare worker. And I think with payers, you know, they want to see proof of you can improve outcomes, you can decrease readmissions, all of these things. So we do a lot of work with independent researchers to show that we can actually improve patient outcomes and patient adherence. SugarPod, a simple, constructed, Alexa-enabled weight and foot ulcer scanner that empowers newly diagnosed diabetes patients to shift their behaviors to better manage their disease, providing a flow of important clinical information leading to better diabetes management for patients and providers. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.